Hi, you're listening to The Lunch Podcast. I'm your regular host, James Rocky, and this week, author and stand-up comedian D.C. Pearson joins us to talk about Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street and an all-howling, all-high-finance edition of The Lunch. Don't forget, The Lunch Podcast is brought to you by Snoot Films, maker of independent movies like The Guest. to The Lunch, a podcast about film and, yes, food, where every week I dine with a creator or a critic in the world of pop culture, and then after that meal we talk about movies and a little bit about where we ate. This week it's very much my pleasure to have a returning guest on the program, stand-up comedian and author D.C. Pearson. You might know Mr. Pearson from his work with the comedy troupe Derek, which gave us the hilarious film Mystery Team. You may also know him from his two novels, Crap Kingdom from Viking and The Boy Who Didn't Never Slept and Didn't Have To from Vintage. You might also know him from his one-man show, D.C. Pearson is Bad at Girls, or from his dry yet always informative Twitter feed, at DC Pearson. DC, thank you very kindly for joining. Me. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, with that introduction adequate, do I, I think feel like so, covered yes. everything. Um, DC can also fly and heal the ill with his touch. <laughs> the thing is that you're a talented cat and you do a lot of things, yes. and that occasionally you will say, Hey, let's rap about the master, or let's rap about right. the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, that was uh, that was just last year. Huh? That was last year, talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, look at uh, an American moment. And I find it hilarious we're reconvening to talk about Wolf of Wall right. Street. Uh, the one thing is that Anthony Lane, and in the introduction of his collected writings, Nobody's Perfect, says that movies should either be written about in the white heat of their release mm-hmm. or a cool remove of 50 years. And, wow. and I feel like talking about anything in between that, it almost feels like, oh, who's talking about Wolf of Wall Street? But it's still an Oscar nominee, mm-hmm. still a great film, still in theaters. And also, why can't we stop and smell the cocaine and insider trading. Yeah, um, I, I feel like it's it's sort of interesting. I mean, that almost kind of opens up a little bit of a side dialogue about the narrative of award season in this interesting. I mean, and you must experience it. I, I do eighty million times more. Well, I mean, it's, it's, the whole thing about the narrative of award season is very strange because you have a race to be nominated, right. after which many films are thrown under the bus. Right. As part of that process. And then you have the nominations, and then immediately you have the sense of, oh, well, let's just really talk about these ones. So in terms of the brutal, you know, uh, uh, Trojan punishment-like process of narrowing down all the year's films to one winner, it always gets a little bit strange and fast and mean, you know? That and, for example, all of this year's Best Picture nominees released since November. Right. Uh, and yet, yeah, I, my girlfriend and I realized when they came out that we had seen, when the nominations were released, that we had seen all of them before they were released, which has never happened to me and definitely hasn't happened since they went to ten movies or nine movies. Or, right. You know, they went to the expanded... Whatever number of whatever movies Whatever number is, of movies. Which is eight. Or ten unless you want to weirdly snub inside Lewin Davis. Ten unless you're feeling capricious and mean-spirited. And I, you know, my whole argument about this, and again, we're digressing. We but digress. Life has shadows, and this is why we have this podcast. Uh, to me, the whole thing of bumping Best Picture up to 10 made no sense unless you were going to do that for the other major categories, i.e., you know, director, screenwriter, mm-hmm. uh, actor, actor, supporting. Double those and really like showcase a broader field of things. And also, I figured the one great thing the Academy could do is say it's going to be a field of. 12 Best Picture nominees, but only three from each quarter. And you would see the film studios shuffle accordingly. Oh, wow. I, you know, that's like, pretty interesting. You know, of all the films January, yeah. February, March, <laughs> three of them will be Best Picture right. nominees. Wow. Of all, you know. Oof. 
I think it would make... People always say, you have all these ideas for the Oscars, but distributors wouldn't like them. And I think, well, I'm not a distributor. I don't care. I mean, <laughs> I'm more interested in going to the movies being fun and right. cool and interesting and offering a broad spectrum of things year-round, not... January to November, here's your horror films and people in, in exoskeletons. Mm-hmm. November, December is the only time of year we set aside for the higher aspirations of art and get out of here. Well, horror films or sort of like, you know, family kitchen table, around the kitchen table dramas where people are wearing exoskeletons. Yes, I, feel, I really feel like we're missing a lot so by not British having... British kitchen sink. Mike Lee's work. Iron Man. <laughs> uh, Iron Man, but yeah. it's in the 50s and he's doing illegal yeah. abortions. Right. I would watch that. Have you ever read that Roddy Doyle book, The Mech? No. Uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just like four down-on-their-luck Irish drunks that are like, we should get a bloody mech, and then they do. Also, that I realized that was more of a Scottish accent than it a really British one, Irish accent. But apologize. what you're saying is that, I mean, I, I think, for one, the whole idea of you segment off a year so that yeah. January, February, crap. You know, my, uh, summer starts in March now, right. and then it's nothing people can lift cars or have a Roman numeral after the name of our film. Well, and it's, it's always, um, I feel like, a common entertainment industry story that you see now is, no one's ever released a movie the week of blank, blankety blank, and they released this one, and it did really well. And it's like, yeah, it's almost like there is a year-round desire for... Not Mo- being movies, insulted at the yeah. movies. <laughs> right, right. Or not even not being insulted, but at least being insulted in a, in a way classy that, way. Yeah, or in uh, a way that, that for some reason people don't like, no, you can't insult them like that that week. That's the week of blah. Right. Or whatever. And it seems that, like that week is reserved for wacky body swapping comedies <laughs> and matched cops. I would love if that was just how it got broken down. And like right. a, if we had a sort of like. Um, Canadian system of kind of publicly funding the arts and it was just like well one year somebody's gonna have to make the um, you know manic pixie dream girl uh, cat, you know sort of uh, uh, makes film. her way through Brooklyn right. film uh, and somebody's gonna have to make the uh, family sits around a table and yells drama well that's speaking of which August Osage County is yeah. a great example of the kind of awards contender film that gets released at the end of the year and isn't very good if you were a major motion picture studio and there were some reason to release movies for grown-ups between January and November, you'd probably get rid of those stinkers a lot more quickly and with a lot less embarrassment. My, I think a, a secret goal that I have as an entertainer is to someday make one of those movies that people's grandparents are like, that was the last movie I saw and it was wonderful. You know, it was, I, I went and saw August Osage County in Toronto at the film festival where mm. it made its triumphant debut. And I just completely fell into this like zone of sensory total over over stimulus, and I kind of blacked out. And then like I was like ah, and I snapped out of it. And apparently I was being shouted at by Meryl Streep while the camera was like two inches within her nasal cavity, and I just went enough, <laughs> enough, I'm out. So yes, I do feel like if there. If, Right now, the Oscar season as it exists, and you were talking about the timing and the mm-hmm. ecology of the award season, it doesn't work at all. It only works for a really broken system. And I feel like something has to actually happen to change it up. But this is neither here nor there, because right. Wolf of Wall Street, do you think it'll win the Oscar? No. No. There's no way. No. Because it's a little bit too tough. Regardless of whether or not you think it works, right. it does feel that little bit too yeah, I think that it doesn't present... I mean, I think whether you like the movie or don't like the movie, I happen to really like the movie. Um, you can't say that it necessarily present presents a whole lot of easy catharsis. Um, I think that what we tend to look for in a Best Picture winner um, is something that feels... is smart on the face of it, and maybe presents some more conventional catharsis than you would normally see in a in in, in what a lot of people would agree is a capital G great film. Um, I think it's I think it tends to be one that um, I mean in the case of something like The Artist, you had a it, it felt very hooray for Hollywood. I think in the case of something like Crash, it felt very hooray for how 
liberal Hollywood is. The, the, um, this, I have not seen Crash. Crash I've, represents like, the kind yeah. of liberalism that a Hollywood liberal can right. get behind. Right. Like, say like Ernest Borgnine, 85 years old, hasn't driven himself since the Eisenhower years, right. worth millions, that kind of liberal. And I think a lot of people came out of, and I say this as somebody who is, I think, you know, pretty darn liberal. I think that there, there are a lot of the kinds of people that I perceive as being the Academy voters, um, at least right now, um, are going to want to see something where if where these bad guys that they're so mad at, and rightfully so, that have completely built the country out of, out of billions and billions of dollars um, and trillions of dollars, uh, they're going to want to see them get some on-screen comeuppance. And The Wolf of Wall Street in, not, in, in no way offers that. In fact, seems like it's almost going to, and then yanks the rug out from under that. Uh, you know, is that great Kurosawa title, The Bad Sleep Well. You know, one of the great mysteries of the human condition <laughs> is that by the end of Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort is perfectly cool with being Jordan Belfort. He right. doesn't feel bad about anything. Uh, yeah. Again, I do think that this is a tough sell for the Academy, which tends to be older, which tends to be a little bit more conservative, regardless of how quote-unquote liberal Hollywood is or not. And also because I think it's an inferior film to 12 Years a Slave, which I actually think is a great chance of winning. I, if 12 Years a Slave won, I would be very, very happy. I think it is a completely... Um, I think I went into it imagining that it would be more kind of... Um, it would it would just be a, a movie that was presenting you with a vision of slavery that you've seen before and saying, "Yep, this was bad. Yep, okay, yep, we all agree this was a, this was a really bad thing." And I, I had a friend of mine who who pointed out, and I think correctly, that it was almost like a horror movie. Um, it made the specter of slavery very present and alive and real. And in their selection of this particular story to tell, they. They, it, 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 you got a guy who is a, is a black dude who is just li- lives as a completely free citizen within a society that's not that different than our own. Whereas most stories of uh, slavery, as depicted by Hollywood, tend to open up with, with main characters who were, you know, born into slavery or, or whatever that like that uh, born in chains. Exactly, exactly, so, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and this movie said something I think much more contemporarily relevant and 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 real and scary, which was this was basically happening in a world where something not dissimilar from the modern world was also going on. And yet you crossed a certain parallel and it was a completely wholly barbaric thing that was happening. And the modern world and the barbaric world were just coexisting. The uh, Twelve Years a Slave, you've you've seen Far From Heaven. Todd Haynes? No. It's a, Todd Haynes, great director, one of those great directors who can't get work. Julianne Moore and Dennis Quaid are a married couple in the 50s. Dennis Haysbert is their gardener. And it's a riff on, I forget which specific Douglas Sirk title, but it's a fake 1950s melodrama where the marriage is unhappy, but instead of just general unhappiness like you would have in the 50s, it's because Dennis Quaid is deeply closeted. You know, there's affection between Dennis Haysbert and Julianne Moore, but unlike in the 50s movie where you could hint at it obliquely, you can look at it more directly, just as constrained, but more obviously, and go, okay. So it's sort of the the visual representation of the past with a very different set of moral and sociopolitical circumstances than we normally get. And what I found myself doing walking out of Far From Heaven was not going, huh, 50s people. They were hilarious. Right. I found myself going, 50 years from now, what things that I do every day am I going to feel like an idiot about? Mm-hmm. And when you look at 12 Years a Slave, it's about the idea that X number of years from now, all those people are going to feel really stupid and really horrible and like they did an awful thing, but by and large, wasn't a problem for them. And again, you know, by the time you extrapolate from, you know, 1864 to now, that temporal distance of 148 years, let's say, what's going to, when you look at us in 148 years, where are we going to look dumb? And I also feel like it plays with the, it plays with the pop culture representations of it. It's designed to be so theatrical in many places. Mm. Um, But again, you're right, the, the movie that, does not say this happened, but 
this happened and things like it still happen are very, very intriguing to me. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think in the, in the case of 12 Years a Slave, it felt like, I think, a, a common sort of post, quote-unquote, post-racial fallacy is that we should get over slavery, or I mean, obviously, in particular, that black people should should somehow go stop bringing it up or stop reminding us that the, 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 that we were basically two nations and one of them was built on the backs of, uh, of, of slaves. And it felt like an answer to why do we still have to be bringing this up? It was like, this is why. Because if you uh, forget how visceral and real it was and how it didn't take place in a wood carving, it took place in your backyard and backyards of people very much like you. It's not the grainy photograph no. with like a, a, a lute playing over it in Ken no. Burns' narration. No. Yeah. Uh, again, there's that whole thing where, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch says, I fear you are an exceptional N-word. Right. And it's the gulf between those two phrases, as well as mm. the hilarious fact that I can't even bring myself to say the N-word. You know, right. but that gulf between, right. like, you are an extraordinary member of a class of people we consider subhuman. Yeah. That linguistic gulf is just mm-hmm. really, really satisfying. And maybe more satisfying than the stuff we got in Wolf of Wall Street. Can we talk, can we talk about sure. the technical matters of the film? It's superlatively edited. It's shot. It's, it's shot like crazy. There are tracking. There's camera work in it that's just stunning. <laughs> What do you quote? Oh, no, just you're like, and there's there's shots, and there's try like, uh, it uh, language fails occasionally. <laughs> you know um, what I'm saying? No, but I did think it that, is significantly that, that, technically adroit right. and fleet. Yes, in and the I way thought that, that the idea that Thelma Schoonmaker was not nominated for best editing was just completely, yeah, a farce. It's a whole thing of like, if you get best director and best picture, maybe you throw in best editing because that's the definition of a film, or you know, uh, this year at the Independent Spirit Awards. Upstream Color is nominated for Best Direction and Best Editing, but not Best Picture. And I'm like, you know, if you can check off two of those boxes, <laughs> I'm prepared to grant you the possibility right. you might be among the third. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that maybe it didn't because people, a lot of people think it's too long. I happen to be in the, seems like a minority camp that feels like it's, I could have, I could have watched more of it. Um, so I feel like maybe it didn't get nominated for best editing because people are like, well, it's too long, but I really feel like, and I think people, even people that I've known who felt like it was too long would agree that it is one of the quickest feeling three hour movies you're ever going to see in your entire life. It goes by like, uh, you know, like a hit of meth, just so fast and unforgiving. We were talking over lunch about things like, for example, and again, like a month and a half out. We're not going to worry about spoilers. In the initial narration, when he goes, no, my Ferrari was white, not red, like right. Miami Vice one. And the car moving changes. Or later on, he's doing the infomercial, and Kyle Chandler, <laughs> icon of all that is right, walks into the infomercial to bust him. Mm. I wanted a little bit more stuff like that. I wanted it to be more playful and more like about Jordan's twisted perceptions of himself. Mm-hmm. Is that is that to you feel like you got enough of that or like or that you liked those touches and didn't need Um I liked those touches and I felt like there were I felt like there were some other ones or at least somewhere you 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 sort of felt the narration almost inflict itself on the on the on the film itself. I would cite the case of maybe like uh you know, um, when he finally gets busted and it's because of his association or, 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 uh, or his banker's association with Rocky Aoki, the founder of Benny Hanna. Benny fucking Hanna. I yeah. don't, I'm not never going there again. I don't, I don't care whose birthday it is. Um, and, uh, and the, the, uh, you know, and the interpolation of that with the, the infomercial, um, I guess there weren't as many of those those touches. I mean, I uh, I liked the ones that were there, and I guess yeah, I guess I could have gone for a few more. Only in a way of if there's something that I really enjoyed, um, I feel like you know I want more of it. But I didn't I didn't feel like it it failed for only having 
those particular sort of meta touches where the actual telling of the story inflicted itself, the actual telling of the story in narration inflicted itself upon what we were actually in, seeing. Inflicted and inflected. Yes. And the other thing is talking about these big, obvious meta moments is sort of, it's, you know, it's a Martin Scorsese film, fil- film, film. <laughs> You know it's going to be well shot. There yeah. are going to be just simple things like moving from a back of that chaotic sales office to the front. Right. That would like test, tax, and overwhelm any other filmmaker. And he's like, now oh, put the track there and we'll do it and it'll be done by Wednesday. And, you know, just mm-hmm. that level of right. competence and yeah. craft. So I, I guess what I'm, the, you were saying how having listened to the audio book, mm-hmm. you're more impressed with the work Mr. Winter did of adapting and that a bunch of picaresque, funny adventures. Yes. Get, I, get the, the self-righteousness shellacked off them. Please eludicate. I, 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 was, I was already, like I said, I already liked the movie a lot. Um, I already loved it, and so I was kind of an easy touch for being even more impressed with the job that uh, Terry Winter did adapting it. But what I realized listening to the audiobook uh, is, I mean, you know, I guess not really because of the audio element of it, but just because of the book, was how um, they took this guy's, as you said, sort of like shaggy, wasn't it crazy when I was super duper on drugs and ruining America and myself. From my repentance, I could only shake my head at myself and wonder <laughs> where I went wrong. Yeah, he, um, he starts the book with a, an intro where he goes into a lot of detail about how um, liberal his parents were growing up and how he was raised in a household that was very, excuse me, politically correct. And he really identifies with those values and that in telling you all about all of the racial slurs he used and all of the ways in which he treated women, that's only to show you, I guess, how bad things got because he was really super duper on drugs and in love with uh, power and addicted to uh, the, as he puts it in the book, the the roar of the of the trading floor, which I think is kind of um, aptly captured by um, the some of the T Bone Burnett like music choices, where there will almost be this weird, I don't know who it's by, but this weird kind of crazy, awful, dark piece of blues music that almost takes you a second to even realize that it is music that yeah. I think kind of stands in for that that roar that, that Belfort describes in the book. But in the book, he really it seems to let himself off the hook a lot more. Almost by, like, by if he's telling you frankly about all this stuff that he did, and as he puts it in the beginning of the book, he's doing it in an ironic voice. Um, almost like he's saying, if I tell you what my internal monologue was like at the time, that somehow makes up for it and you can sympathize with me now. I'm trying to recreate my addled criminal perspective in all of its intensity. Exactly. Um, But then um, by the end of the book, because I think that they ended up taking a lot of the third act of the movie from this other book that Belfort wrote called Chasing. Catching the Wolf... Chasing, or Catching, I can't remember which one, The Wolf of Wall Street, um, that uh, the, the, the book of Wolf, The Wolf of Wall Street itself, the third act is all him getting sober, and he claims one, as soon as he was a, like a day sober, he just completely had no more chemical desire to ever do drugs again, and then became a completely different person. And it really, I don't know, I'm, you know, uh, I've never been in recovery, um, so I'm not trying to judge anybody's, uh, I guess, journey. It feels fairly insincere, and like he's using the recovery narrative that we're all used to to excuse his actions up to that point in the book. And I think that the movie does a great job of showing us that though he couldn't have gotten more off the hook, the, I think the filmmakers are not in any way letting him or people like him off the hook. I, again, we were talking about the whole thing of like, you know, does the Wolf of Wall Street condone its character's actions? And I don't think so, obviously. I mean, those actions are shown as fun, but they're not shown as good things. I think the biggest, I think the reason why people are feeling more. I think there's moral outrage over a film, more so than moral confusion. People walk into that movie nebulously angry and not sure who to be angry at. But I was hoping about, you know, I was saying to somebody that 
What if you think that failing to show the consequences isn't a moral failing of the movie, but a dramatic one, i.e., early on when he's starting out, he's new, he's in that too big double-breasted suit, and his two new bosses are going, hey, Pally, I made $750,000 last year. That jerk, pointing at McConaughey, he made a million. So, <clears throat> and then it's, oh, we made 50, I made $49 million that year. And I'm, I wanted to see more of a series of data points to show how the rate of change of rate of change of rate of change had gone up to show that, you know, in many ways, Jordan Belfort was just surfing a wave that was going to crash eventually, and he wasn't the only guy up there. It's, it, a lot of a movie makes him look like an anomaly, you know? Mm. And, you know, when you look at the fact that what percentage of stock market transactions have nothing to do with financing new companies and instead are solely speculative. When you look at stuff like that, it's almost like the straw man argument of, oh, this guy, the Wolf of Wall Street, he did, he did it. And it's one of those things where it's easier to look at a human being than systemic corruption. Right. And I, well, I think it was, it was, I was thinking about it on the way over. I think that the reason that his is if not the right story to tell, a right story to tell about the ways in which um, young, largely men, young men have uh, turned uh, our financial system into a, basically a like minority report, uh, touchscreen whizzing around world of total abstractions uh, that, they can get, that they can pull real cash out of while the rest of us uh, burn, um, that... Uh, t- that he actually was behaving to the people surrounding him in his life um, the way that all of these guys behave to the people that they supposedly are trying to make money for. Um, I, that's, that's what I was sort of uh, thinking about on the way over, that the he is doing to people near to him um, what everybody else is doing in a sort of abstract financial way. So when he, i.e., um, i.e., that's not the right, when he, Internet Explorer, um, when he uh, uh, pays these two cops to uh, hush up the fact that he and his buddies beat up this gay butler who he thinks stole money from him, and then the cops, as as he uh, frames it, as a bonus, beat up the guy for them, for, for him, um, or um, when he uh, is essentially sexually assaults a stewardess while he's super-duper looted out... Um, that he is doing to the people that are physically in his presence uh, what the rest of these guys are doing on a, on a global financial level, which is doing wrong and paying their way uh, into it being right. Yeah, they're they're you know they're and and that's why it's a it's a story that you can actually see visually without having to and understand on an intuitive level without having to for me anyway to go into the numbers and as we discussed at lunch some of my favorite things in the movie which I was initially a little bit um, off put by when I saw it the first time are the moments where. DiCaprio's about to launch into something like you would see at the beginning of Casino, where a somebody huge exp- amount of exposition. where somebody explains uh, exactly how the money gets made. Here's how a skim happens. Exactly, yeah. and uh, and I think on the one hand, Scorsese doesn't want to do it because he's done it already in other movies like Casino, but also it's besides the point. And so DiCaprio says, "Well, you don't really care. The point is, we were making tons of money." And as we were discussing at lunch, that is kind of, to me, one of the central important messages of the movie is this is how these guys get away with it. They get away with it because you don't know how it works. If you tried to understand, by the time you actually figured it out, they would have moved on to some new science fiction financial instrument that they can use to bilk people out of what's theirs. It's a collateralized Sacagawea obligation. We put together people's Sacagawea dollars. <laughs> we take those, flip the value till it's negative, and then sell it. Now, if the value of, like, all this stuff, right. uh, the whole thing of collateral, you know, one point DiCaprio says, you know, you're not even going after these guys with a collateralized debt obligation. I mean, what the hell are those? Right. And those are the things that nearly destroyed the economy during mm. the housing crash. And, you know, the fact that I got to write this film up for Cinephiles, and I, you know, the one throwaway line I have is, this movie looks really funny until you realize that you've been living in it for about 30 years. Uh, and 
all of this stuff. It started with Reagan era deregulation, continued under Bush, kept going under Clinton with the Glass-Steagall Act, and even up until this day, the, the, this mechanism, which is about... I have, if you really enjoy your Dungeons & Dragons game, that's lovely. But if somehow your Dungeons & Dragons game makes you $10 million while taking that money away from other people, I would have a series of rational questions to ask you. Right? Right. Often the question is, how can I get it on your Dungeons and Dragons right. game? But that's what this is. It's yeah. crazy made-up vaporware. Well, it, yeah, it was, and, and we were talking about, like, say, for example, like that Michael Lewis book, the big short about where he sort of attempted to dissect the makings of the 2008 crash, and uh, in doing so got me really, really far down the path of understanding it until such a point as I was completely, completely baffled by it. But it's a, it's a world where guys go, okay, well, the stock market is basically designed so if you buy into a company and that company makes money, hooray, everybody makes money. And isn't that great? Because everybody is making money. And we're only not making money when a company itself isn't, isn't making money. And they looked at that and went, wait, but what if we could make money off of the times when people lost money? So because you lost money, I made it. And... That's literally and the then you edge of my sales. <laughs> That's the which are right. bizarro universe, which I madness. still don't really right. understand. Right. And in the and so in the Wolf of Wall Street book, he kind of does go into a lot of detail, and he comes across as clearly a very smart guy, and paints himself as somebody who made a ton of money because he is one of the few guys that was willing to actually sit there and try to understand all the intricacies of these various insane science fiction financial transactions. I mean, it's the whole... I'm, Ian, you and I were talking about this. It's the thing of, after you watch Wolf of Wall Street, you have two options. Do you, A, go home and research what the Glass-Steagall Act meant in terms of banks being able to offer securities, or do you, B, want to do all the cocaine in the world? Because a movie's more experiential than it is informative. Yeah. And that's okay, that's well and good, but it also feels like... Shrug, crazy world, folks. You know, there's, there's, it feels more interested in depicting something that has happened and that's going to continue to happen. I don't, yeah, to me, it doesn't feel like a, the end, the ending does not feel like a shrug to me. To me, to me, the ending feels intensely uh, angry and accusatory. Right. Um, the fact that we're sitting in a movie theater. And then the last shot is a bunch of people essentially in a movie theater-like setting watching, watching Jordan Belfort continue to make money. It feels very, very, very... Um, uh, it feels very angry uh, to me. It, it, to me, it didn't particularly feel like a shrug. And the reason that it all worked for me was you get taken on this ride with this guy and you're really in his head. You're in his story... And he does all these things, and it's sort of up to you, to the audience member, to go, like, that was the most hideous, corrupt, terrible thing I've ever seen. Um, you know, uh, and your hand isn't being held throughout it. And then at the end, after you've seen this guy just completely succeed by being the most despicable dude ever on every level, um, and he finally is going to get his comeuppance, he says, you know what, but for a second, I forgot that I was rich. And... He just gets, I mean, he, he essentially gets away with it. He you has see him playing tennis yeah. in the nice prison. He takes up tennis, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that, um, so we don't, as an audience member, get the false catharsis of seeing one of these dudes actually get their comeuppance. But what it says is these guys are real and they are really getting away with it as we speak. I think it's hilarious. It was like, you know, there is a huge thing in American law enforcement. Was it Rockefeller laws or was it Reagan era laws? Where, uh, just, you know, to, they started measuring the weight of the conducting medium for drug busts. So if you had four doses of LSD and a kilogram of water, you would, you would be, your sentence would be predicated on the weight of the kilogram of water. Oh, wow. Now, if you had 2,000 hits of LSD right. on some dryer lint, mm -hmm. you would be fine. <laughs> or it would be less than the cost of that. And I'm like... So if we have mandatory minimums for certain kinds of drug crime, when those laws are horrible and they right. tend to, you know, because crack cocaine weighs right. more than powder cocaine, tends to send African Americans to jail, why don't we have mandatory minimums for financial crime? Like every ten or $20,000 you jack 
is like, why amount of time, no negotiation? Mm -hmm. why do we, is the answer to that why we don't do that? Because a lot of those guys would prefer we did not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I think so. And I think that what this, what this movie says is that if you make enough money, the rules don't apply to you. And that's all it says. And, and also, as we were talking about uh, uh, at lunch, um, that to me, the thing that makes it such an intensely Scorsese and intensely sort of Catholicism damaged uh, movie or damaged or inspired or, or, or whatever, inflected movie, is that what it says is, what if we lived in a world where there were no, if you, if you, cho if you chose the right, wrong things to do, there were no actual exterior consequences for doing the wrong thing. What if the only thing that motivated you to do the right thing was doing the right thing? And it also says that is the world that we live in. Um, and it, uh, so to me, that is what made it so, so intensely, intensely uh, morality drenched but I guess you also have to kind of, I guess you also have to kind of bring that to it. Something that I think you, though I, I think you have your misgivings about the film, have not done that I've seen other people do, and I thank you for not doing it, um, is go, well, I got this about the movie, but there's some other theoretical person out there who's not going to understand this about the movie, and so therefore it's a bad movie, because I can conceive of some the condescending whole, the, portrait. The whole argument of... Look, if we let those retards see this, we're all in yeah. trouble. Yeah, yeah. No, I hate that. Yeah, I hate that argument. I mean, it's it's just the whole. It, what I do want to talk about is Please. something we were talking about earlier. Uh, female characters. There's one scene in this film where it's a whole thing of, oh, I would like more of that, please. And it's when Jordan's getting ready to quit, and he sees one of his employees, Kimmy Belzer. She's not an assistant. She's a trader. She's played by Stephanie Kurtz Duba. Or Kurt Zuba in like the, the definition of a great supporting part and he starts saying to her I remember when you came here looking for a job and you got the job and then you asked for a loan so you could pay your rent now you're wearing Chanel blah 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 and she's like love you Jordan and I'm like this strikes me as a very different relationship from the ones he has with almost every other woman in the universe never mind in his life where does that come from? Right. And I wanted more of Stephanie, Ker you know, Stephanie Kurtzuda's uh, Kimmy Beltza. Flat on the balls of your ass, Kimmy Beltza. <laughs> I wanted more of that mm -hmm. for more of an understanding of we like how weird the rules of this get where, yeah, we still treat women horribly unless they're earners and then they're equal. Right. Like this, this, this horrible realm of endeavor where success obviates any failing or flaw from accident of birth to addiction to drugs, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think you, I think you, I agree. It's a, it's a phenomenal scene and a, and a, and a great performance. And um, I think all of his speeches are real. Um, uh, all of the speeches that Jordan gives in the movie are are really uh, tremendously g gross little diamonds of. The way we view ourselves and, and how we measure ourselves against capitalism. And um, I think you're right. I think that basically what, part of what that is saying is, of course we don't treat you this way. You've actually gone out and, and made your own money. And when you contrast that against the way that Jordan views his, um, his I guess, ex-wife who is, everything's all, all well and good until I get arrested, and then she's gone, she's out, she was always a gold digger, I fucking knew it, um, that, that there is a weird, um, incredibly uh, sexist, uh, uh, weird, like, Madonna whore complex of, like, In independent, independent woman, <laughs> of independent woman uh, versus um, gross gold digger. Um, that this guy, that Jordan has uh, in his head, when it's just the same thing as like, you know, it's the same thing as like a lot of rappers and their moms, where it's like, you can't stop talking about how much you love your mom and how she raised you as a single parent. You also can't stop being incredibly demeaning to every other woman around you. And I think that, uh, I think that it's something that with, um, that is, is, is really, really fascinating. And uh, what was I, there was one other thing I was going to say about the, the Kimmy, um, thing in love particular. You, oh yeah, <laughs> I fucking love you Jordan. Um, 
that, that it goes back to something that my friend my friend Dan pointed out uh, that he felt was the whole if not key I don't want this to sound like one of those dumb articles where it's like this movie decoded once you understand but you never see Cobb's wedding ring um, yeah. uh, but when um, DiCaprio assaults that stewardess and then wakes up and he's tied up uh, on the plane and uh, he's trying to figure out <laughs> he what has happened to be told what yeah he has did. to be told what happened and then he flashes back on it and then um, the, the, the line that Dan highlighted as being this sort of like key uh, to, the, to the film is, is uh, Jonah Hill says, you know, it's a good thing we were in first class. And that, to me, sums up so, so much about the movie. Like, for, for Kimmy, for example, if she wasn't, quote unquote, in first class in these guys' eyes because she has... You know, uh, as, as Jordan puts it, like conquered her problems by becoming rich. Uh, she could also be just another one of those assistants who is shaving her head so that she can get money to get double D's. Or getting stooped in the coffee room right. while the most bored assemblage of human beings look on at her <laughs> degradation. Like, anybody, like, I think the great thing about The Wolf of Wall Street is it makes all of its debauchery look energetic and zero fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, any rational human would just be like, right. can I get a hand wipe? Can I get some sanitizer? There's something about the lighting in the boardroom, or in the, in in the, the copy room, that feels so... Like a Hieronymus in- Bosch portrait of <laughs> Like the the, the the cigarette break in hell. Like yeah. everyone's bored. And they almost want to get back to work suffering. It, uh, there's something that that cinematographers often do to try to make things look drab that actually just makes them look intensely beautiful and interesting. And this, I feel like they hit the nail on the head in terms of it actually looking <laughs> truly drabovision. Drabovision. Uh, as a side note, again, you know, we're talking about Wolf of Wall Street, and it's on everyone's mind, it's up for the Oscars, but again, one of those award season narrative dealios, do you miss actual supporting performances? I'll give you a hypothetical example. American Hustle. I have no objection to Ms. Adams or Ms. Lawrence getting a nomination for both work. They're both lead performances. And meanwhile, the young lady who plays Jeremy Renner's wife, his loving, involved-in-his-career wife, is absolutely terrific. I would mm. love to see her get a supporting actress nomination, and she kind of won't. I, I miss the days of actual supporting performances getting supporting performance nominations. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, if that were still the case, then literally everyone in Inside Lewin Davis would get a nomination because right. there that is a movie that truly in which there are no small parts. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, but a, good, that's a good point. Like the young gentleman who plays the army sergeant slash folk singer in Inside the <laughs> Tremendous. Oh my God. Tremendous. No, I haven't met Private Presley. Why does everyone ask me that? <laughs> um, that and, uh, again, you know, or uh, Garrett, Garrett, not Garrett Dillahunt. Garrett Hedlund. Garrett Hedlund. Garrett Hedlund. Johnny Five. As Johnny Five, who's this weird character... Uh, I went, I got to talk to Mr. Hedlund for the On the Road uh, release, mm-hmm. and it just turned into the nerdiest discussion of like American literature. And I was like, I can't sell this to anybody. No one's gonna, no one's gonna want to read this. Right. I just like the whole thing went off the rails. Like, oh, I should have asked him who he was dating. What superhero he'd like to play? Instead, right. it's like no, no one's really gonna want to talk about Thomas Pynchon and Don DeLillo. No one, <laughs> no one wants that. But again, guys like him, who it's like, I have two or three scenes, I'm gonna kill it. Did you see Deception? No. Very charming, uh, loving spoof of corporate intrigue thrillers, made directed by Tony Gilroy, the gentleman who wrote Michael Clayton, the gentleman who wrote many of the Bourne films. And it's Clive Owen and Julia Roberts as industrial espionage types. Huh. And there's a scene in it where Clive Owen goes in to seduce Bobby Brainerd, the corporate travel agent for this big company, so he can get information out of her. And there's a scene where she is being seduced by Owen, and the scene later on, like the next day, where she's called him a carpet by her superior. She's like, I don't care. I had a wonderful time. I'd do it again. And those two scenes in that film are like, give her all the Oscar. You know, <laughs> she's, she's not the lead. She can only be in two scenes in it, but she kills it. Yeah. And it makes you buy the movie. And I just feel like supporting actor is one of those definitions we've let get a little too fuzzy. Yeah, I, I had never really thought about it before, but I, I think you're correct. I mean, I think that the, um, say, the the mom in Nebraska is kind of the, for what you're saying, is almost the 
that's the upper limit of the size of role that you would say as far as a true supporting character. Right. Or it shouldn't be, we would really like to give this person a trophy and they were in the film. Right. Or of a kind of mathematical jiggery-poker. You right. I mean, Sally Hawkins, classic supporting performance. Julia Roberts, maybe not so much. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I was, as a 70s movie nerd, I remember things like, oh, uh, you're playing William Holden's actual wife. You have one scene, which is one monologue, and you are going to win the Oscar for that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we're capable of that kind of I guess maybe the last one would have been, um, I can't remember her name, but she's an Australian actress that was in Animal Kingdom. That was a very oh, Jackie role. Weaver. Yeah. Jackie Weaver, who's in the upcoming Ryan Reynolds film, who's jolly good. The upcoming Ryan Reynolds film is by Marjan Satrapi, who did Persepolis. And it was just no at Sundance. And so it's like, A. Oh, that sounds great. I read a review of that. The that voices. sounds really yeah, good. Yeah, where it's Ryan Reynolds is the nicest that sounds psychotic you'll ever meet. I can't wait what, to see it. What was great about it was like within couple of minutes, I was like, I get it. This is going to be a master class in color and composition. Mm-hmm. And then it's a master class in color and composition as, oh, this is all a heightened reality because it's all from his I'm not on my medication perspective. <laughs> and then you get like a few seconds of mm-hmm. the on his medication perspective and it just looks like every other Sundance movie. The carpet is dirtier, <laughs> the light is, you know, 20% yeah. lower. And then he goes off his meds and getting you're fine. You're like... Got it. <laughs> it was That's just, great. I do like sort of the um, playing, like the really heightened look at me kind of way that um, you know indie films can sometimes be visually mannered, and actually using that as a story device to say like this guy is insane. Right. Like if you said to me, "Oh, the Grand Budapest Hotel," uh, you know, uh, Ray Fiennes' character is on a series of paralyzing uh, anti-flatulent drugs. And the side effect is that everything has perfect pastel composition <laughs> and wacky color schemes. That would make that film a little more fun. Okay, back to Wolf of Wall Street, yes. but only tangentially from Wes Anderson. Yes. Uh, did you have an, a brief element of, ah, I get it. It's another lovely Scorsese rise and fall arc. Like, oh, thank you, but, but you did this remarkably well in Goodfellas. Oh, thank you, you did this remarkably well in Casino. I mean, how, long, how many times is he going to do that before he feels he's perfected it? Because I feel like he kind of has already. Um, I, 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 would, I think I would be more ambivalent about him doing again if I, A, felt like this one didn't bring new elements to the table, and B, if I hadn't seen other people do it so poorly. And we were talking about this, how, I mean, again, it's kind of contest that's no contest at all. But if I said to you... Hey, do you see? Would you rather rewatch American Hustle or Wolf of Wall Street? You would say. Um, I think just on a, a one, the one that stuck with stuck with me the most has definitely been Wolf of Wall Street, um, but it also hits more of my just kind of like you know a, a giant Scorsese nerd triggers. Right. You know what I mean? So that's coming from more of a like that's almost just more of my Star Wars or Star Trek answer. It's like, well, I think they're both great, but. Star I Wars. I just for some reason Star Wars just I resonates. I really liked Green me. Lantern, but I thought I thought American I thought American yeah. Hustle was 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 very entertaining. I really liked a lot of the performances. I thought that people who compared it to who 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 sort of held it up against uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Like I saw some people being like, "Oh well, well American Hustle's really more the Scorsese movie." And it's like, first of all, did you see Wolf of Wall Street? Have you seen a Scorsese? But, have you seen a Scorsese movie? But also, to, I think to say that is to rob it of its essential David O. Russellness, right. which I think is a wonderful element that was super duper present in American Hustle. I thought that the sort of um, uh, motor mouth boundarylessness of his characters is something I find really appealing as a motor mouth person with only boundaries. Right. <laughs> so it's a, sort of a, a, a vicarious uh, thrill, and I thought I had a lot of good performances. I think for me, on just a pure um, Star Wars versus Star Trek level, I'm more of a Wolf of Wall Street person, for sure. And because it just, I mean, again, William Goss, who we both know as a charming yes. writer and rock under and friend, sort of pinged me after Wolf of Wall Street came out and he said, you gave it three out of five, but it's on your top 30 for the year. And I'm like, yeah, because it has more directorial energy than almost anything else this year. I just want that energy to be better focused. I, there, I was thinking about ways where 
that energy could have been put to better use. American Hustle does not come close for that. I would like the intrinsic wackadoo direction of Wolf of Wall Street is more diverting than American Hustle, which occasionally can look at, you know, those cute pictures of like little girls trying on mommy's dresses and their little tiny feet and the heels and, oh, the pearls are too long. That's what a lot of American Hustle felt like for both the men and the women. Like, quit playing dress up and pretending to be grown ups. Um, I should show you, I have a, after the podcast, a picture of uh, me and my girl, one of my, me and my girlfriend's cats uh, cosplaying as Jeremy Renner in American Hustle. Cause it, it's, oh, because uh, you put the cat up as a pompadour? <laughs> he, is a, he has a pompadour made out of my, my girlfriend's uh, hair. It's pretty exciting. And again, Jeremy Renner in American Hustle, to me, is, it's weird to me how little praise that performance is getting. Because really he's, underrated. He's, he, it's really underrated because he, he gets himself in the worst possible place because of the best possible intentions, as mm-hmm. opposed to everyone else in that film who gets in the worst possible place because of the worst possible intentions. And... I mean, Kristen Bale puts on weight, and, you know, Bradley Cooper does that whole thing where he's a Pez dispenser, but with, you know, uppers. And meanwhile, Renner's just off in the corner being really, really good in that film. You, you know, a, a, a movie that is getting, is nominated for, best in terms of things that are sort of being slept on, even though it's nominated for Best Picture, I really feel like Nebraska is intensely underrated. Does that, does that sound right? Uh... Nebraska was a tough fit for me. I really? Res- I respected it and I liked it, but bear in mind, my dad is 83. Mm. And I think the whole thing of, God damn it, dad, you didn't win anything, you know, kicks in a lot sooner. I, 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 I love The Descendants. I think the ending of The Descendants is sublime in a way that only film can be, this depiction of mm. how swiftly and unmentioned it is that life gets back to normal or you're watching nature TV and eating ice cream again. But I just felt like Nebraska was a little bit too arch, if that mm. makes any sense. A little, a little bit too devoted to the idea of Will Forte has almost no agency and is just there to drag around Bruce Dern. Now, do I think Bruce Dern's great in it? Hell yes. I got to do an interview with him and I oh, needed cool. 10 minutes. That turned into a half hour long conversation. Oh, just, wow. Just about Nebraska. We didn't even start talking about it. Like, right. I just watched Black Sunday the week before where I... He goes to both. Oh, yeah, that's the big uh, Robert Evans one. Robert Evans produced it. <laughs> Robert Frank and I were movie based on a right. novel by the guy who wrote Red Dragon. Right, and that was the one that he was like, this is where I'm going to make all my money. And then was on, Robert Evans was like, this is the one I'm going to like have a giant stake in. It was the highest testing film ever in Paramount right. history. I mean, right. The only other thing opening up was that stupid Star Wars thing. So, you know, it was going to be fine. <laughs> oh, Black Also, Robert Shaw's in it as a Mossad agent, which is kind of ever Sean Connery's submarine captain. Because we have... When you have Robert Shaw, right. agent of Mossad, saying, tell me I got about this Super Bowl. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, what, part, what part of Israel are you from? Belfast? <laughs> you from Belfast, Israel? Uh, one final thing about Wolf of Wall Street. Can we just briefly praise like Jonah Hill, terrific Margot Robbie, not just an extraordinarily well-shaped mammal, but has a great command of the acting material. Christina Melotti, an actress I could have seen a lot more of the first way. Yeah. But that's a murderer's row of people in the BNC parts, as Rugrat, as Chester Ming, Joanna Lumley as the right. aunt. That is like maybe the most perfectly cast mm-hmm. film I've seen in a long, long yeah, time. Yeah, there is a um, uh, guy who is actually a like a UCB dude, like a UCB New York guy. Um, named Henry, who plays one of those dudes, and he is phenomenal. He's the guy with the sort of almost walrusy mustache. Otter. Um, yeah. Otter. <laughs> who, is, who is in the orgy scene having the most bored, like, untightened abdominal muscle yeah. sex ever. And I was. Oh, he's a UCB guy. Yeah, I was so, okay. so thrilled to see him in it, and I. Um, I got I, I got to see it, and then I texted him that he was so great in it, and he was flying to LA. He hadn't seen it yet and it was so cool to talk to somebody that I actually know and it's like not only are you in a Scorsese movie but this is like a phenomenal phenomenally entertaining part of the movie it's so memorable the whole thing where they pull those guys in and it's like uh 
uh, Alden, what kind of a name is that? And he's like, so sure. I was like, it is uh, mine. <laughs> we almost, right. almost I, don't, I don't remember that. Do, Chester do Ming. Remember that. Getting, right, Chester Ming. <laughs> Chester Ming, that guy just mm-hmm. burns the house down, and God love him for it. Absolutely. Yeah, that whole, also, I think just one of the, it wasn't quite to the level of, of the narration, like, inflecting itself on the, the actual visuals, but where they're talking about the friend, whose name I can't remember, who never quite joins Stratford. He was just the drug dealer and rat hole oh, yeah. guy where he gets out of prison and they have him on the yacht and they're like, yo, and then he died at 34. Same age as Mozart. Massive heart what... attack. <laughs> yeah. Or, or... Uh, not... <laughs> not sure why I said that just now. Glenn Kenny of Sun Came Running, who writes her voices, he used to write alongside me at MSN, great human being, did a whole terrific thing about, do you really think Wolf of Wall Street suggests this is all fun? And it talks specifically about like things like massive heart attack, just 35, right. Brad. And then you know, like the whole thing of, it turns out he married the stupid secretary and blew everybody. Yeah. But crazy, two years later he shoots himself and you have like the weird visual mm-hmm. jump to yeah. the footage of. And Scorsese is like, anyway, or not Scorsese, but the narration is like, anyway, and back into the story. I'm like, how do you watch that and not think this movie is being intensely critical of it, these people? It's the whole, the, you know, what Wolf of Wall Street lasts two hours and 40 minutes, but I think of the narration as being done in like a cocaine jag 15 minutes. <laughs> The Wolf of Wall Street is a two-hour and 40-long film of a 15-minute story. And things like Brad's heart attack mm-hmm. and, like, weirdly, he shot himself and her two years later. Nobody knows why. Photograph of bathtub. Right. But back, too. Right. Those are, like, those weird moments when the serotonin level drops. Right. But then he gets a post-nasal drip or whatever. <laughs> whatever it is cocaine right. fiends do, like I know. Oh, speaking of character parts, Spike Jones. Oh, my God. Oh, Tremendous. Have you felt haven't shared the diff? Yeah, I just, and again, Scorsese is a guy who feels like, I mean, anybody who is Joe Bob Briggs playing like somebody from a gambling commission. <laughs> right, 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 right. Right, I mean, mm. any of that stuff. Is, Can't you find him something a little further down the trough? A little further down the trough. You know, all stuff, like, even like the weird eyes of the guy who plays Jimmy Tutu. Yeah. Get the papers, get the papers. Right. But, it, I mean, as a capital M movie where everything's put together, even like the anachronistic use of the Foo Fighters as a music cue, uh, you right. know, I, it's a, a superbly constructed work. I, again, I wanted a little more. I, I, I was one of those films where I was like, saw its goodness and saw where it could have attained greatness and didn't quite. For me. Right. Again, for me. Right. And I. Maybe I'm grumpy, maybe I'm old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I real I almost felt like it was a one... T- I, f- I felt like l- less like it was rehashing Goodfellas and more like it was the second in a one-two punch. Uh, because you have the one... you have They're similar stories, except in one of them, the guy doesn't have to move to Arizona and eat egg noodles and ketchup. He like literally gets paid to be him. On a formal repentance tour. Yes, and he tells you, he's going to teach you all of these things about how to be him, except don't do all the things he did, but here's how you do it. These are the techniques I employed along the way yeah. becoming a cocaine-addicted <laughs> spousal abuse. Yeah. How a spousal abuser. However, you can employ the techniques I employed on my way to becoming extraordinarily wealthy without becoming a cocaine-abusing spousal abuser. Right. Maybe? And what? Yeah. It, and and it's, I feel like it's just saying that there... It, the the desire to learn how to get one over on your fellow man is and 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 go to a workshop about it is sort of baked into the American experience uh, the, and it's gross. The American experience and the Wolf of Wall Street both both baked down to look if you know how to sell you're one step ahead of the schmucks. Oh and you know what? We can teach you how to sell. We can even sell you that. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Right. Totally. Grim and terrifying thought. Absolutely. Uh, but you're also making me want to rewatch with the Jabers out of it, which is exactly what a lively conversation about film should do. All right. You've been listening to The Lunch, <laughs> a podcast about film and food. Our guest this week, Mr. D.C. Pearson, stand-up comedian, author, and huge fan of the American auteur. Uh, we dined at Rutz, uh, Rutz Hawaiian on Washington Boulevard uh, for the second time. Second time. All we're going to say is that if you're looking for a great Hawaiian-themed breakfast place... This is really the deal. Their signature dish, the Royale. Could you describe it, DC? The Royale, um, sans cheese, um, has uh, 
let's see, it's got white rice, a huge bed of white rice that would send that Tim Ferriss dude that wrote the slow carb book running, screaming right. into ah! the, the Marina del Rey. Um, and uh, it has um, teriyaki beef or something on it. There's scram- pork. It's a loose yeah. scramble containing, uh, if I might. Please. Uh, containing uh, Kahlua pork, the slow roasted fall of pork pork. <sighs> It also contains char siu pork, the lacquered hoisin sauce, very red on the outside, mm. gray on the inside pork. It also contains sliced Portuguese sausage, bean sprouts, green onion, scrambled eggs. It's like a very vegetably little tiny bits of protein scramble with egg, then put over the rice. And you can get the, uh, you can order various combinations or various sizes, but. You can also get the Atkins one in the future. Oh. That's even an option. Interesting. But, so if you're in a high school production of South Pacific and you want to take the cast out to have an economical but character-appropriate meal, yes, that's fine. Also, if you're in a high school production of South Pacific, do another show. The songs are awful. <laughs> the whole thing where a meal... Lo- Everybody in South Pacific is racist. and then I don't think like, I've ever seen it. Oh, I've seen a little bit of it on TCM. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, so the main thing keeping these characters apart is that you object to the fact that he has mixed-race children from a previous marriage. Oh, the fact that you can sleep with this young lady but not be with her is because she's a little bit darker. It's like one of those cultural artifacts where you're like, wow, that was a stunningly racist time in America. <laughs> and then you, you kind of get past it. Right. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. The South Pacific, no, not a good call. Do so it. after you watch The Descendants, yes, Ruts of Wine. After you watch The Descendants, Ruts of Wine. After you watch Tora Tora Tora, <laughs> Ruts of Wine. After you. Watch... After you've just gotten back from an island where you were like the grandson of one of those like cargo cult Japanese soldiers that still thinks that the that World War II is going on. I think you're conflating two things: of a cargo cult and yeah, a forgotten oh, veteran. That's true. I also just said conflating out loud, which is a really, really good sign to wrap it up. When I start talking <laughs> like a fancy lad, <laughs> when do I stop? I don't know. The Wolf of Wall Street is still in theaters from Paramount Pictures, and who knows? Maybe it'll get some plucky Oscars. Our guest this week on the Lunch Podcast has been stand-up comedian and author D.C. Pearson. His films include Mystery Team. His one-person shows include the superlative D.C. Pearson is bad at girls. And his novels include The Boy Who Didn't Sleep and Never Had To. Couldn't Sleep and Never Had To. Couldn't Sleep and Never Had To. There's a lot of words in there. Uh, I know. (laughs) Three, two, one. His novels include The Boy Who Couldn't Sleep and Never Had To. Which is from Vintage and from Viking, his more recent novel, Crap Kingdom. If you've been enjoying the Lego movie and its bizarre twist on the Chosen One saga, I think you'll find Crap Kingdom's interesting approach to similar narrative ground very, very enjoyable. That was an unsolicited... Uh, I'll take it. You'll take yeah. it? Yeah. There we go. More importantly, you can find DC on Twitter at DC Pearson, D-C-P-I-E-R-S-O-N. Correct. I'm your regular host of The Lunch, James Rock, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at The Lunch Podcast. More importantly, DC, how about we do some crack and then run like lions? Uh, it doesn't sound can, funny. Can we, just do, can we just do like the like... Apparently that was just something that McConaughey was doing in between takes. And, you know... And DiCaprio was like, we have to get this we have to get in the dinner. scene. Also, uh, it's, do you not wish, just as a final thing, that the McConaughey character would turn up at some point later on? Like, what happened to the first generation of wolves? Right, right, right. I mean, I think he had... Oh, God, he looks so intensely unhealthy in that yeah. scene. It's such a wonderful kind of, like, harbinger of... of right, like... <laughs> Good times are coming. Yeah. By good times, you mean a lot of guys waking up too skinny face down in a pool of their own blood with $1,000 trickling down the back of their throat. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I wish you'd come back. With that said, thank you all very kindly for listening to this extra special lunch reconsideration of Wolf of Wall Street. Until the next time you tune into The Lunch Podcast, I'm your regular host, James Rocky, thanking you for listening. And don't forget, Go to the movies with your friends. Have a meal afterwards. Talk about it. It's a pretty good thing.